0: be lying if I said I didn't miss those soft jazz intros. I dig that. I dig it a lot. Welcome everyone to Reading Aloud Live today. Again, we're returning to the Satanic Witch because well, we haven't finished it yet. <laughs> and I don't think we're going to finish it anytime soon. Certainly not tonight, but we're going to give it a go. We're going to see how far we can get. I'm going to give you two hours and uh, hopefully, hopefully um, we're, we'll get a good chunk in maybe to the next chapter. Uh, Sparkling Shadows, it is copyright-free jazz music that's offered on YouTube uh, for all creators to use. That's where I got it. Hadn't heard from it or heard it anywhere else, so I figured it'd be nice to have as an original, pseudo-original piece. But thank you, Sparkling, Zachary, and Pi for joining in the chat so early. I know I'm early out the gate with this episode, but I was sitting here just staring at the screen. I was like, well, why don't I just start early? People who are just going to be listening to this later, they don't know. So, you know, why why pay attention to schedules, right? I don't care. You don't care. We don't care. It'll be fun. Alright, so we're in the chapter ESP extra sensual projection. And we left off on uh, sound. We still have to cover taste and touch. Uh, so, that's going to be interesting, I think. <laughs> We've got a troll. All right, hey, um, fuck you're grateful to Jesus, and fuck you. All right, <clears throat> yeah, Yona, I'm glad to be doing stuff too. Um, I got to the point where I realized that if I wasn't keeping myself occupied and busy, uh, I just spiraled. <laughs> so. I guess maybe I have to do something, and this is the something that I've chosen to do, read. It's good for you anyway, right? Feed your brain. Uh, what's up, dogs? How you doing? It's been a little while. I hope you're doing well. We're going to dive right in. If you have any questions or comments throughout the course of this about anything that we're reading, feel free to put it in the chat. And uh, Between every section, not necessarily every chapter, but every section, uh, I'm going to stop have a bit of a conversation, see what you guys are up to, and we'll just try to have a back and forth there. So, as we begin, let me know, what sounds do you find uh, both attractive and annoying? Um, (laughs) I I find incredibly humorous uh, in Dumb and Dumber, when Jim Jim Carrey's character says, do you wanna hear the most annoying sound in the world? And yes, it is insanely annoying, but it's very funny in context. But again, if I was having sex and a woman did that, I would lose my mind. So what what drives you crazy in a good way and a bad way? Let's start there. Oh, no. Flooding, that sucks. I heard that's happening in the South. I don't know where you are, but that's what I heard. Let's do this. Sound. Oh, wait, let's do this. A witch's voice must be consistent with her appearance. Inconsistency of voice is one of the most common causes of failure in would-be witches. It is one thing to be inconsistent in ideals, topics of conversation, attitudes, etc. These are the kind of inconsistencies which are often helpful in intriguing your quarry. We must remember, though, that these are the inconsistencies that simply say that you are different from everyone else. Not the sort that will be picked up automatically by the person as the wrong cues to your basic personality type. It is not simply what you say, but how you say it, that counts in witchery. Have you ever noticed how the girls with the largest bodies often have the tiniest voices, and, conversely, the smallest women usually have the loudest? Of course, this phenomenon is most noticeable in extremes, but then it is the extreme nature of such cases that makes them noticeable in the first place. Loudness of voice relative to the size of the individual is secondary, as loudness is usually controlled by emotion. Pitch is the important factor to consider when establishing your proper image as a complete witch. One of the essential elements of comedy is inconsistency. If a man sits down to play the tuba and the sound of a piccolo emerges, it's ludicrous. Likewise the little man with the big foghorn voice seems ill-suited yet we see short plump little women coming forth with husky pseudo-sophisticated femme fatale voices, thin aesthetic types with whining nasal voices, big Amazons with little squeaky voices, petite Dresden dolls with hoarse bellows, misfits all. If you are tall, aggressive, with red hair and prominent bone structure, you must cultivate a big outgoing voice. If you are short, Blonde and well-rounded, then your voice should be softer and pitched higher. Don't overdo it, though, as it only requires a slight raising or lowering of your normal pitch to make all the difference in the world. Assertive and dominant women can get away with using regional and foreign accents much easier than witches on the lower half of our synthesizer clock. The higher one is towards the top of the clock. the more They are more suited for dialects, accents, strange or unusual speech characteristics, etc. The lower down-the-clock one is, the more readily will plebeian, slangy, folksy, childlike talk pay off. As for what you say, eleven to ones can say just about anything, and the more of it the better. Two to fours better make sense when they talk and can be as cool and cynical as possible. Five to sevens should speak little and agree plenty, and eight to tens must be moderate in the quantity of words used and have a sense of humor. Let me give you a couple of examples of witches I have known, and how one simple change in their speech patterns makes them complete witches. Witch A is an unpretentious, round-faced girl in her early twenties, with brown hair and rather pretty features, about 8.30 on her clock. Wishing to be a real witch and viewing all the late shows on TV as a guide, she acquired a sultry, husky voice. Her conversation was steeped in ambiguities and esoteric intrigue, and she fancied herself a rather plump enigma. Everything started going from bad to worse as she got witchier and witchier, and if failure was any criterion, she had made it. When she consulted me for guidance and training, my secretary thought Catherine Hepburn was on the the phone. Her case was easy, uh, easy. All she had to do was learn to laugh raise the pitch of her voice a half-tone, make an occasionally funny comment, or at least try, get rid of these slinky black dresses, and learn to say what you mean and mean what you say. After about two weeks of practice, things started looking up, and she went on to some real witchery. Witch B is a big busted sex bomb in her 30s with red hair. She's five foot eight inches with slender legs and hips and the kind of chest expansion that elicits comments and whistles wherever she goes she has an extremely sensual face to go with it she is a perfect 11 o'clock type a lot of woman with an ebullient outgoing personality and is happily married to a respectable uh, respectable naval officer when she came to me for coaching in the black arts she had a tiny childlike voice with all the inflections of Shirley Temple Jane Withers Wee Bonnie Baker and Betty Boop all rolled into one. Actually, an intelligent girl, she sounded as though she didn't have a brain in her head and could be accepted only on her looks. Delving into her past, it turned out that when she was a little girl in New York, child stars were the rage. Vaudeville was still around, the movies were in their heyday, and Hollywood was at the end of the rainbow. Our witch's mama was sure her little doll ink was going to give all those other kids a run for their money and wind up with her name in lights. After a lengthy succession of tryouts, agents, amateur shows, kitty reviews, bowing, curtsying, tap dancing, baton twirling, eye rolling, not to mention sitting on the lap of every producer on Broadway, our witch had developed a voice that was to issue from her vocal cords for many years to come. She, unlike which A., had the humor, charm, and beautiful looks to keep her happy until she decided there was something missing, something perhaps easily learned which would enable her to excel in applied witchery, as she had long been fascinated with sorcery and magic. After talking with her, it became apparent that she could talk in other voices and intelligently. All she needed, with her childhood dramatic training backing her up, was a little encouragement and the proper part to play. She had spent enough time in England to imitate every kind of regional speech pattern from Manchester to Brighton. We decided that the most important thing she needed was a new voice, so slowly at first, so slight as to be almost imperceptible. She started lapsing into her best Hampstead dialect. Within two months, her voice was a full tone lower, her accent was established, and she was calling the shots in a way that surprised herself more than anyone. Now her role was established in perfect harmony with her true type, worthy of inclusion in any Ian Fleming novel. The question I hear now is, how can I possibly get away with changing my voice when everyone knows me as I am? There are several methods you can employ. The easiest, of course, is to simply change your pitch slightly and no one will notice, but you'll have the fun of seeing their change in response to you. If you are the type that would benefit by an accent, but you can't effectively carry it off, don't even attempt it, as it could make matters worse. If you can carry a dialect well, don't worry about what your friends think. Start it out as a joke, and lay it on so often that it becomes part of you. Anything that cannot or will not gain acceptance if presented seriously will always be accepted if properly presented as a joke. Those with a sense of humor will respond with laughter. Those devoid of humor will only appear as grouches. Those who really like you and don't resent your success or happiness will understand if your technique is explained to them. If things aren't going the way you'd like and you change your speech pattern and your few so-called friends say they liked you better the way you were, you may assume that means they liked you, uh, like to see you held down and getting nowhere fast. This applies to all changes in the book might bring about your appearance and personality that will gain you new powers of enchantment. The real results of your new voice will be most apparent around people who don't know you. Oddly enough, a voice change is the most difficult modification of your image to bring about because it takes the most guts. It can well be the very change you need to perfect your image. In so far as vocabulary is concerned, the worst thing you can do is to affect a a sophisticated manner of speaking and use atrocious grammar and bad pronunciation. This is as ludicrous as the aforementioned inconsistencies in pitch relative to size. Countless comedy routines have utilized the character of the woman who is trying to be cultured and puts her foot in her mouth every time she opens it. The difference between using comedy as a magical weapon or being ridiculed by others is all in the self-awareness of the individual. In one case, they think they're laughing with you, but the joke is on them, as per my advice concerning accents. In the second case they're laughing at you you know they're laughing at you but your ulterior motives will give you the last and loudest laugh in the third case they're laughing at you and you don't even know it this last case is obviously the one that must be guarded against the predominance of many hippie witches who don't know the first thing about the manipulation of others let alone the forces around them has given rise to the assumption on the part of many of these would-be witches that a few choice astrological terms plus a ten-word vocabulary is the official speech pattern for magic and mysticism. These poor things, who are often convinced that they have the formula, stop their mantras only long enough to utter such profundities as groovy, wow, oh wow, heavy, yeah, right on, far out, plus a few one-choice obscenities that have long since lost in the impact. Don't get me wrong. Slang has always been and always will be the language of the people, but sad indeed is he whose vocabulary is reduced to the use of only slang expressions, and a pitiful few at that. There will always be those who, in their collective speech for identity, employ only the most hackneyed of popular expressions. We had flappers whose speech was limited to, Oh, you kid! Twenty-three skidoo! the cat's pajamas, etc. But they claimed no magical power, only the hip flask, the fast joy, the devil-may-care attitude so dear to the heart of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Nor did the hep cats with the zoot suits and drape shapes and the reet pleats profess any magical awareness while they were in the groove. If you want your witcheries to work, avoid overuse of such expressions like the plague. As they throw a wrench in the gears of any basic personality image and type, you are in a truly prejudicial manner. Of course, if your witchery is centered within such a group as the aforementioned, then you must employ such expressions as a means of gaining acceptance. If a witch comes up to me some day, enlarges her pupils, and says, with a hey-nani-nani and a ha-cha-cha, she'll be sure to get my attention. Music is one of the surest means of enchanting someone, and there is no doubt that music is the universal language. A smart witch can enchant a man she cannot even talk to if she can play even badly, or sing music that is analogous to his country. Through the proper choice of music, one can transcend all language, cultural, economic, or ethnic barriers, which might otherwise be limiting factors. Unfortunately, most people think this means You will love me if I play you some of my kind of music, and I will appreciate you for yours. Get such stupid ideas out of your head. This assumption is like expecting everyone to think your baby is as pretty as you do every time you bring out a snapshot of your child. Very few babies are ugly, and very few types of music you could play would appeal to no one. But one of the biggest and most common mistakes a witch can make is to assume the music she likes best will be equally appreciated by the man she wishes to enchant. The fact that one's taste in music resides in the core of his personality gives credence to the statement that the soul of a nation resides in its music. Therefore, if you want to bewitch someone, play him his kind of music, not yours. If you play him your kind of music, you're playing what represents your true personality, but not his. If he does exercise his demonic element in his corresponding musical form rather than in a woman, you are in the same position as the woman in the restaurant listening to the violinist mentioned in a previous chapter. You will simply be another instrument added to the ensemble on the record, a fellow fan who adds to the enjoyment of his real love, the type of music that is only a substitute for you. Therefore, you must take the place of your musical counterpart, The only way to do this is to musically distract him with the opposite type of music from that which you represent while you move in for the kill. This is simply like getting his old girlfriend out of the house so you'll have the room to operate. What is far more important to consider with the sort of music to which a person will respond is the type of response itself relative to the personality types. With regards to musical response, I have quartered our synthesizer clock into these basic characteristics. 11 to 1, Motivational, 2 to 4, Intellectual, 5 to 7, Participating, 8 to 10, Social. If you want to please a person, it helps to stress the kind of music that would be closest to his position on the clock. Strong melody and rhythm are necessary to charm those on the left, while the beat taking precedence over the melody at 9 o'clock. Rhythm to these social types is more important than melody if one of the other music uh, must be sacrificed. The music is companionship, the incessant beat like chatter. This runs concurrent with the element of earth that we find at nine o'clock. Being the most social, music represents companionship more to these people than any others. Hence, eight to 10 o'clock types are more likely to have their car radios going at all times. By the same token, these people, like the three o'clock opposites, are least distracted by music. The 9 o'clocks need music for companionship, but are more likely to pursue other activities while listening. Even while making love, these types will have a radio going with no distraction whatsoever. 2 to 4 o'clocks sometimes listen to music while they pursue other activities, but not for companionship, as they do the 8 to 10s. 2 to 4s appreciate and study music rather than respond to it. The mental aspect of the right side of the clock sees to that. This is why they like music of a mathematical bent, such as Bach and Brubeck, whereas the fluidic influence starts at four o'clock with an emphasis on ballads and folk songs by the time five is reached. Being of an esoteric nature as a result of the air element, most adherents to experimental music and avant-garde forms will be found at three and four o'clock. Music critics fall into two to four categories, as would be expected. The 11 to 1s and 5 to 7s are compelled to listen to music and are directly influenced by it the most. These are the types that are unable to listen to music without responding and seldom will be able to pursue any other activities while music is being played without giving attention to the music. The big difference in these two, op- uh, these two opposite types is this. The 5 to 7 is enveloped in the music and becomes a medium and reactor to it, whereas the eleven-to-ones are also swept up in the music, but become moved to action by it. Don't expect to sexually inflame those types through music, as it will distract them from anything you have in mind. Quality, rather than quantity, is more important to the six o'clock, whereas the reverse is true to the twelve. A good example of this would be a Sousa march, which could be enjoyed and reacted to equally by eleven-to-ones or five-to-sevens. The twelve o'clock would rather hear the march played with the emphasis on loudness, and therefore could appreciate hearing it slightly out of tune on a broken-down merry-go-round band organ, so long as it was loud. The march would then be used as a triggering-off mechanism to get the show, the twelve o'clock, on the road, rather than as a whole experience, as in the case of the six o'clock. This is the reason that when hearing music, the six o'clock will dance to it, and the twelve o'clock will go out and do something as a result of it. The nine o'clock will need it, and the three o'clock will analyze it. The dance used to be one of the most practical uses of music and witchcraft. Now that physical contact with while dancing has become a thing of the past, we have reverted to an older form in which each person dances individually, either for their own expression or for the entertainment of someone else. The social elements of dancing are stressed by the number of people who are dancing in the area or room instead of by physical contact between dancers. This should present no problem to the witch though, as most men are voyeuristic and will be much more stimulated by watching a woman moving about suggestively than by dancing with her. The exceptions to this rule are dances which are designed to place emphasis on contact with erogenous zones, and one can only trust that the day will soon come when dancing between couples will return. Before such a pastime ensues, however, a new and epicurean sense of sexual repression must be developed. Until then, dancing will serve as an art, entertainment or means of rhythmic expression, but not the overt form of social-sexual enchantment it once was. Don't forget, though, the music that motivates people to dance contains the same rhythms that motivate the muscles and tendons of the body to fornicate, Horizontal dancing will always be popular, and the intervals of sound that humans call music have helped to maintain that popularity. As an old time clergyman once said, the devil has always had the best tunes. When we think of music, we seldom think in terms of the normal speaking voice as such. Nevertheless, everyone's basic personalities has its own rhythm, and that rhythm is exemplified by the normal cadence and tempo of the voice. If someone is in high gear all the time, you probably notice how it shows in his way of speaking. One of the greatest tricks of human manipulation is to be able to adjust the speed of your voice and the relative pitch and inflection to match that of the person to whom you are talking. You should be able to learn the art of mimicry well enough so that you can lapse into a subtle, almost imperceptible echo of the other person's voice. To do this, you begin your conversation with the other person in your normal voice, which should, of course, be consistent with your basic type, as we have discussed previously. That much then has been established, and your image, as you would have your quarry define it, is exactly what his demonic element calls for. Within the first few minutes of your conversation, you allow your voice, tempo, and inflection to merge slightly with his. He won't even notice this if you are gradual enough accompanying your conversation with the very slight nods of your head, indicating you are in agreement with him. If he is a sourpuss and displays certain mannerisms that brand him as a pessimist, don't nod your head when you talk. This type wants someone with whom he can commiserate and usually shakes his head from side to side even when telling of something wonderful that happened. If you run into this type, shake your head from side to side too as you talk, letting him think he has met a fellow loser. Within five minutes of conversation, you should have thoroughly established yourself on the same speech frequency. You have then performed a very potent magical maneuver. There are no longer two people talking, but only one. Your quarry is now speaking as a whole person, using both his apparent and his demonic self. You have given him his demonic voice by appearing in the guise of yourself, but speaking as him. He will be disinclined to contradict whatever you suggest to him, and now he is the only one doing the talking and his ego, the crystallization of his true self, his core personality, the devil, who sent out the demon you represent and the thing that must inevitably be served, will not allow him to speak out against himself. He cannot disagree with what you say, because to do so at this time would mean to disagree with himself. He will find himself saying things you want him to say and thinking that they are his own ideas. Don't neglect to nod your head ever so slightly at regular intervals, except when with a pessimist. Don't forget that the most effective suggestion can come in the guise of a question accompanied by a nod of the head. If you're dealing with one of the aforementioned grumps, keep your voice dropped at the end of each phrase and keep shaking that head. Let him feel that you are the only person on earth who understands how crummy everything is. <clears throat> Remember, if he didn't see in you the traits opposite from those you are now projecting when he first confronted you, he wouldn't be charmed by you now. After you have kept up your mutual belly aching and head shaking, and you've arrived at the point in your conversation where you think it's wise to interject whatever it is you want from this man, your next step is to raise the pitch of your voice very slightly, as you force your card on him. As you speak, this time, you nod your head instead of shaking it, drive your point home in two or three sentences, all the while nodding almost indiscernibly and speaking with brightness in your voice. Then drop right back into the role you were playing, your voice dropping, your head shaking, your shoulder ready, and everything but the crying towels. You have your suggestion shoved into his brain in such a way that he can never get it out. If he doesn't follow your suggestion right away, it will haunt him until he does. You've got him when his defenses were down and the door to his unconscious was wide open when you tossed in your desire, all neatly packaged. The sooner he does your bidding, the better, because that's the only way he will ever get it out of his head. Use your voice. It is one of your best magical weapons. If you do, you will quickly discover that not all ventriloquists keep their mouths closed while talking. (laughs) Nice. I dig that. Alright, people, what are you chatting about? I'm seeing shit popping up on my screens. Keeping me totally distracted. Alright. Upward inflections turn me off immediately. It's obnoxious. You did an Aussie accent for a while in your youth and you would not believe how much attention it got. It was crazy. Dudes love it. Yeah, it's true. Man, you put in a Kiwi or an Aussie. <coughs> Scottish, yeah. I'm a fan myself. Uh, shite, man. <laughs> You missed author and punisher for the last Tool tour. What are you guys talking about, David? On the upside, though, you can maintain a decent mood with music too. So I guess I shouldn't complain. Um, so for me, feel good music, not that anyone asked, but I'm going to tell you anyway, is either blues or, um, uh, oh, what is my go-to? It's gotta be oldies, like <clears throat> Louis Armstrong, um, Rose. Oh my gosh. That, okay. That, to be fair, it's feel good, but it's like sexual feel good. My, my go-to sex music, and I want to know what you guys have for this one as well. Um, it's like Nine Inch Nails, the Fragile album. It is great. It just slowly builds, and it just maintains, and sometimes it gets a little crazy, and then you can just follow that and let it go. Um, Miles Davis is great. That's like a Sunday, lazy Sunday afternoon for me. Um, all right, so yeah, let me, let me know what you guys think. What's your uh, love-making tunes? <laughs> On the off chance that we ever make love, <laughs> what can I bring to the table? <clears throat> My wife bought this cinnamon chai tea. Phenomenal, absolutely fantastic. It's like organic. And so it's not like that pre-packaged stuff. And oh, gosh, it's so good. Not because it's organic, but just because it's damn good. Love it. Oh, Elif is Gerald. Oh, dog. <laughs> oh. Yeah, no, that's feel good. That's your loving music. I love that. That's great. Uh, Cigarettes after sex. (laughs) Great dream. That's a band, right? Right. Looks like some links are being thrown in here. Sorry, I'm not going to put the links in there because I don't know what they are. I'm going to have to check them out first and then I will. All right. So should we do the next bit here? It's going to be another big one. Oh, nice. I'm going to have to check it out. Uh, This is on the importance of odors. So, we're going to get into some weird smelling shit. Hope you guys are into it. I'm not a big smell guy. Like, I'm into pheromones because it's not overt. You know what I mean? But you put on perfume and stuff, I don't dig it. I'm not a fan. I don't know, what's your guys, where do you land on on perfume, personally? Is it something that you just subtly apply? Is it something you use to mask scent? Um, Do you avoid it like the plague? Like, where do you land? And we're going to see what uh, the doctor says here about it. Interesting stuff. Hmm, that's fair, that's true. I like both of those smells. Those are great. You give me some leather or some old wood. For whatever reason. Smells good too. I dig it. Yeah. I think that's fair. Zach. Yeah. What I can't stand. And this is something. And it may just be of the time. But when I was in high school. And this was back in the early 90s. um, A lot of the hippie kids would just do patchouli oil. And not as like an accent, but to mask weed or their natural body odors, which they just didn't have good cleaning habits. And so they just were pure funk. And so they'd use just gallons of patchouli in order to mask that. And what they didn't realize is that the patchouli was as offensive as their body odor, <laughs> if not worse. Come on people, honestly, kills me. And then it, like in, my o- in a professional office, I was leaving my office to use the restroom and I was just passing someone and it's just like the strongest smell of patchouli in a professional environment. Are you out of your mind? Who does that? Fucking hippies. All right. I don't know if they're hippies. On the importance of odors. Oh knows how you have deceived me. Ewan Bloch. Odoratus sexualis. I realize that this is a somewhat delicate topic, but it is one sense in particular that women have most neglected to use, hence more powerful for the witch who uses it. Of the five senses, the, smell, the sense of smell is the most neglected. An odor will evoke an entire state of consciousness more thoroughly than any other form of communication. No other form of sensory cue has been so shrouded in guilt, misinformation, and self-contradictory definition as have the things we smell. The paradox of perfumery stands as the most fragrant example of the olfactory deceptions, wrought in the name of finery and good taste. As a witch, you should learn some basic principles of enchantment through odors. First of all, don't scrub away your natural odors of seduction. It doesn't matter how much brainwashing has been done to make certain bodily odors undesirable. Millions of years have seen to it that such sense will never be reacted to in a negative way. The most successful witches are those who smell like women. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't bathe or wash your underwear, but one can overdo a fear of offending to a point that neglects any opportunity for success. This obsession to scrub away dirt, and with it sin, is a byproduct of the kind of Puritanism and Calvinism that defines all the laws of nature. The Huguenots even had a hymn equating bodily odors with sin called Everybody Stinks But Jesus. There's no doubt that, to many women, a bar of soap has replaced the confessional. Women who are accomplished and pay strict attention to personal hygiene are successful in spite of their habits, not because of them. Usually such cases revolve around established groups, business, social, professional, where acceptance has already been gained. Then, out of protocol and decorum, stringent hygiene is maintained in order to perpetuate one's status. In the animal kingdom, this phenomenon would be illustrated by the smelliest animals achieving status, then once having attained favored positions, sniffing each other critically to see who smelled the worst. We are no different. When we meet a person to whom we respond favorably, invariably he smells good to us, even though we may not consciously recognize any odor. If there is such an attractive odor present, it is usually one that would be considered disgusting, disgraceful, or repellent if the origins were known. If the odor that attracts us in the form of a perfume or cologne, it is usually made from the sexual odors and mating scents given off by beavers, catorium, cats, civet, whales, musk muskrats, musk zimbata, deers and goats, musk. And numerous plants and flowers whose odors we mustn't forget are intended by nature to attract for the purpose of survival and pollination. It is inconceivable to think that human beings could be the only creatures without appealing sexual odors, yet odors that originate in the sexual parts are considered anathema by a large majority of them. Millions of dollars are spent each year on substances that will remove any trace of offensive Human odor, and more millions are spent on purchasing the bottled sex smells of animals to replace the scrubbed off and astringent, uh, astringently removed perfume that is the most bewitching of all. Women also find male odors tremendously appealing. Some women, for example, get turned on by sweaty men. In fact, many folk dances contain a gesture in which a scarf is held under the armpit during the dance is waved about the man's partner. I find it ironic that the science of perfumery was developed in days when such extracts were applied in addition to the natural odors of the body. Many perfumes were employed because of the lack of sanitation and hygiene, which necessitated the strong odors being covered up by stronger ones. As clothing became more cumbersome and elaborate, people perspired more, and the accumulated secretions that lack of bathing left to ferment made perfumes highly desirable and polite circles. If everyone went about with an overabundance of clothing and six months between baths, it would get pretty uncomfortable in a crowded room. The main reason for the discomfort, however, would not be because the odor of the individuals in the room to whom you would be sexually attracted. It would be all those others present who were not your type that would make such a gathering highly unrewarding experience. Who or what would constitute those who wouldn't be your type generally, assuming you're heterosexually inclined, members of your opposite sex. This is the reason virtually all heterosexual women are concerned about personal hygiene. You don't get excited, only repelled when you smell the female odors of another woman, and damned if you want to smell that way too! Men and lesbians love the aroma, however. But other heterosexual women and homosexually inclined men find it repugnant. If you could portray the demonic element within you, you would favorably respond to your own odor as a man would. Your built-in perfume should be a perfect blend of acid and alkaline substances generated by the secretions of the Bartholin glands, perspiration, and urine. Nature has constructed you in a manner that leaves folds in the flesh in the proper places, so that a blending of these three just-mentioned substances is assured. If you doubt what I say, heed the fact that the most common article of female clothing that is employed as a fetishistic substitute are panties, and the ritual accompanying the acquisition of same invariably consists of the sniffing of the crotch, performed in an epicurean fashion. Don't be misled into thinking it is the heaty scent of the perfumed soap or sachet in your bureau drawers that makes your undies appealing. They are appealing in spite of the spice and lavender, not because of it. Perfumes should be used over existing odors, not in place of them. And the perfume you choose should bring out your own odor, not neglect it. Some of you may have noticed that men seem to swarm around you mostly when you have your period. Undoubtedly, such a situation has proved disturbing to many of you, as you feel it is an inopportune time to really get involved, especially where sex might be concerned. Here again, we must rely on the animal kingdom for our knowledge. The female of the species is always most appealing to the male when she is in heat, which corresponds in some ways to the monthly menstrual cycle in a woman. The changes which take place in your system at this time are such that the normal sexual odor is highly intensified and because of this, carries further. This is why such a big fuss has been made about offending at this time of the month, but are you really offending? It is true some women have an odor that can cause very decided rejection during their menstrual cycle, but this is because A. It is mingled with the odors that are incompatible, certain foods, tobacco, etc. B. Little or no hygiene measures have been taken insofar as regular changing of tampons or pads. C. A naturally excessive menstrual odor. It has long been part of folk wisdom that brunettes have a stronger natural odor than blondes. The last two reasons relate to the intensity Of the odour rather than the odour itself, and I cannot stress enough that any odour, if strong enough, becomes unpleasant. The most pleasing scents, when intensified enough, become noxious, and conversely, many of the most alluring scents are reductions of otherwise objectionable odours. The basic menstrual odour is not offensive, it is only its over-intensity which makes it so, The actual scent given off this time is the most potent aphrodisiac a woman can employ if properly used. Many old witches' charms call for the use of menstrual blood invariably along with other ingredients thought to be necessary. Magical potions, salves, and even charms usually contain only one or two ingredients that really count, but several others that are thrown in because, A, the more complicated something is, the fewer people will try to make it even if the instructions are available b. The unnecessary ingredients serve to misdirect the uninitiated or unenlightened from the truly effective ingredients. c. The more difficult it is to make, the more dependency rests on the powers of the witch. d. The credibility of the substance will be greater. Nobody believes in things that are too simple to understand. e. A higher fee or price can be charged by the witch. f. The originators of the potion didn't even know themselves that out of their complicated mess, only one or two ingredients were doing the trick. Unless the human animal is to be considered the only exception in nature, you are theoretically appealing, rather than offending, during your period. The only offending you need worry about is where your scent becomes overbearing, or in having to refuse an ardent male with whom you would like to go to bed. A fine trick, utilizing your menstrual cycle, requires taking a tip from the makers of perfume. All the substances mentioned earlier in this chapter are the bases of oils and waters, which are considered pleasant smelling. In every instant, the original substance from which the perfume is made is overpowering in its odor. Only when scaled down will such a strong odor be accepted as pleasing. If your period produces an extra strong scent, which potentially has tremendous drawing power perfume-wise, but at a time when you can't gracefully do anything about it, Put some of that aroma in a doggy bag and save it. If you can think of a more romantic name for a magical pouch containing some of your menstrual blood, go right ahead. The method my witches have found most practical is to retain a sanitary napkin or tampon, which has been well saturated and cut it down into a size small enough to be unobtrusive. Cover it with a very light material with an open weave so the odor will not be stifled, yet the contents will be unrecognizable if it should be discovered. The finished product should be in the form of a tiny pouch or amulet, about two inches square, and sewn together at the top. When you go forth to confront your quarry, tuck your sachet inside your blouse or sweater, where the cleavage between your breasts will hide it and also supply enough heat to activate the scent. Don't worry about the smell being too strong, as it will be cut down considerably by the intensity produced during your period, but still retain its effectiveness. Don't expect to like what you smell if the odor wafts up to your nostrils. When the rest of your body is not experiencing such exultations, you will not be attuned to the odor as you would be during your period. Also, the close proximity of your breast area to your nasal equipage will make it seem stronger smelling than it is. If it really bothers you, place a small dab of Vicks in each nostril and you won't smell a thing. And the slight trace of camphor sometimes even adds to the effectiveness. If anyone should ask you what it is, should it be seen, tell them it's an old witchcraft charm bag containing powerful herbs and powders. Sometimes a leather thong, a string, or thin chain attached that will allow the pouch to be worn around the neck is a good idea, providing your clothing will cover it. Here are some other helpful hints in smell binding. Gauge your use of bodily sense by the occasion and environment within which you will be operating. If you're going to be around nothing but other women, and it is among them that you must pass inspection, keep yourself pure and, ugh, fresh. If you're going to be in the company of men, however, let the effective perfume that nature gave you work its wonders. I am appalled by the way a woman will reek of various odors, such as strong foods, cigarettes, liquors, etc., yet maintain a fanatical concern for her personal hygiene insofar as sexual odors are concerned. Of course, the literature of sexual pathology contains much reference to men who revel in all manner of strong, overwrought, and abnormal odors. Aside from the natural fragrance of your genitals, certain other odors can be employed to subliminally turn a man. One of the most effective of such essences is gasoline. When used in combination with other odors, it will surprise you with its results. Gasoline is best employed where its odors can be subtly wafted into the room in which you are throwing your spell. He shouldn't be able to detect it strongly, but almost imperceptibly. Dried grass and weeds, balsam, eucalyptus, pine, rubber are also very stimulating to many men. Urine is another odor which has only been erotically bypassed by the human animal, and there are more men who are stimulated by the smell of urine than will ever admit to it. The odor of chocolate is sure to win children over to you if you're teaching or working around them. To a child, no one can smell as nice as the person who smells like candy. You're probably wondering why I haven't mentioned specific scents that are well-known as perfumes when you like many of the oils and fragrances of an exotic and elegant nature. After all, you have been using perfumes all your life and most certainly have your favorites. There is the answer to your question. We are not concerned here with your favorites. But what will bewitch the other person? We have made our full circle from where we started at the beginning of this chapter, and this rule sure stands out. The scent that you like best on yourself are inconsequential. The odors you like least are the odors the man who represents your demonic will like best. Those wonderful exotic fragrances, bergamot, jasmine, jonquil, Tuberos, Heliotrope, Fragipani, (laughs) Ylang Ylang, Sandalwood, Saffron, Lilac, and all the exquisite creations of the world's finest perfumers are largely manifestations of the wearer's own vanity rather than tools of the witch's trade. The same perfume you select as a favorite smells good to you, and if a man selected it for you, it's because it smelled good to him. Has a man ever presented you with an expensive bottle of perfume? Can you honestly say that the perfume he gave you was the kind you would have chosen yourself? Or was the stuff used once and then put in the drawer? Maybe he knew what you liked because you told him and bought it for you. But did he really prefer it to others or buy it simply because he knew you would like it? Who was charming who with the perfume? Think about these questions and you'll see that the perfume is like candy, enjoyed the most by the consumer. It was once fashionable for all gentlemen of consequence to wear perfume. There's no reason why men should not wear the same perfumes as women if they like the scent. Unlike differences in men's and women's clothing, perfume has been employed by men as well as women throughout history, and it was not until late in the 18th century that it was that its use among men declined. Now a revival of male use of perfumes seems apparent, which is good. Women are more influenced by perfume than are men anyways. Perhaps if men wore wear more, women will wear less and they will be able to smell their favorites on their lover and husbands, thereby putting their own scent glands to work instead of some beavers. <laughs> I love the idea that you're using beaver scent glands to cover your beaver's scent glands. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, <laughs> I can smell your fear. Uh, Cleanliness is second only to godliness. Yeah, if Christians only knew. (laughs) Fucking idiots. Oh, man. Desitin over smarter every day. Did a whole episode on letting his wife pick his cologne in a double blind test. Wow. Um, Yeah, so if I ever use a cologne or something. Oh, I don't. Like uh, it'll be the, the scent that comes in like a deodorant, you know, um, or a beard oil or like a facial cleanser, though I try my best to get no sense at all. I think my wife likes the smell of my natural funk up to the extremities point. And I don't mind it, so <laughs> what the hell. Yeah, there's, there's nothing like the look of someone after they've gotten done with a workout until you get close to them. <laughs> That's when it's too much, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, it can be rough. I don't know. Um, what do you guys think, though? Is, is uh, too much scent too little? It, it, do you think the doctor has it right? Just use it to mask your own sense um, and not to... Uh, or use it in conjunction with your own sense rather than masking your own sense? Um, I don't, I don't think I've ever met a Satanist who, because I think it's just core to what we are as animals, um, who tries to hide or scrub away their own scent, you know, and certainly not after they've actually learned the psychology behind it. And I think maybe that's what best sets us apart from other people, right? Because we operate with intention when it comes to our bodies, ...and how we present ourselves. Whereas other fuckheads that are just roaming the streets... (laughs) ...because that's what people do... um, ...they don't give a damn. They just pour on whatever scent, if there is a scent... ...and if they happen to bathe, they don't care... ...and they just go about their day. Or they think they need to smell like a fucking candy cane all the time... ...or a cotton candy or something like that. Drives me nuts. Uh, Notice that your sense of smell gets way stronger when you're hungry... Zachary, I have not even thought about that I'm gonna have to gonna have to think about that. I don't know um it makes sense, I think that you would naturally become attuned in the same way that your mouth reacts to the sight of food or stimulus when you're hungry um your taste buds you know like your your um saliva starts flooding into your mouth. It makes sense that you're nose would do the same by smelling the aromas and that's the other thing i mean we, we already talked about music um in in this chapter but in the same way that music can take you back immediate time travel device to another time and place to a memory uh, smell is the exact same way exact same way and it's crazy the sheer power that we attribute By the recognition of that, that if you just smell like, uh, for example, an apple, a cinnamon apple pie being baked, it'll take me back to my childhood. Um, We recognize the strength of the smell in that case, but when it comes to our own personal hygiene, we're just like, oh, I gotta hide it. I don't want. Well, maybe some, you know, bring someone back to their first sexual encounter, or uh, an an amazing lover they had, or a fantasy that they wanted to fulfill. Like you, you're hiding. What is going to draw people to you? So stop, <laughs> stop. That's me smacking your hand away. Um, it's good for you. sense are good. You went on a run after a fast. Oh, dude, I bet. Yeah, could you imagine, uh, like any Jew in uh encampment in like uh, World War II, when the Russian and Americans came to rescue them with food they could probably smell them a mile away or like an animal you know just moving by or here's a fucked up thought now you wouldn't necessarily smell with the gassing but if they were burning people and this is something i've thought about from like watching horror movies and stuff what if smelling human flesh made you hungry (laughs) you know like if you're hungry and you smell cooking meat I just walked in the house, my wife was making BLTs, and the bacon hit my nose, and instantly I was just like, ah, I need to eat. What if human flesh did that? Hmm. I'd take a bite. I would. For sure. Would you guys eat human flesh? Just a question. Don't ask me where I got it. (laughs) Taste that (laughs) chicken. Long pig. Alright, let's keep going here. Enough bitching. Tastes. We're going to get into taste. We're talking about taste anyway, right? Taste that, human. Taste. When a child smells something he likes, his natural impulse is to taste it. This also applies to human adults, repressions notwithstanding. It is simply repression of one kind or another that keeps an adult from following up his desire to taste an object which smells pleasant. Most repressions are those which are taught, some wisely, some out of ignorance. "'We refrain from taking poisonous substances "'because someone has told us of the consequences. "'The old witch who lulled her victim to helplessness "'through a potion or elixir "'was very much like the classical poisoner "'who made sure that the substance to be drunk "'was indeed pleasant to the taste. "'When the same witch was called upon "'to perform some miraculous service, "'she knew the opposite would be needed "'and made sure the drink she gave her client "'was noxious and bitter.' If something wasn't difficult to take, her customer would assume its effect to be worthless. This chapter shall deal with your quarry rather than your customer. Therefore, whatever you employ for your bewitchment must be easily ingested. The first requisite for any four to nine o'clock witch is that she learn to cook. Witches who are in the 10 to three o'clock category on our synthesizer clock need not know how unless they are playing the role of another type. Their talents should lie in potions. And it is more important for a dominant type of witch to be able to make a good drink than to cook. In dealing with food, a witch should recognize that a great deal can be told about a man by his eating habits. Once his tastes are known, his food preferences can be catered to. Though it is true that a man's heart is reached through his stomach, it is more important that he can be fed the right foods, relative to his personality, than those you find the most appetizing. Like perfumery, foods that you like best are not necessarily those that he will like best. Many a poor witch has slaved over a hot cauldron, preparing what she considers to be the most delectable meal in the world, only to have it unappreciated. What is even worse, though, is to spend a lot of time on a meal, watch him eat it with apparent enthusiasm, and then notice a decided coolness the next time you see him. What this often means is that he said he liked the meal to be polite. Chances are good there are more reasons why he took the powder than you cooking alone, but the wrong choice of food could have been just the nudge he needed to stay away. Had you served the perfect meal, you might have had another chance, and the next time his mood could have been conductive to your success. The only time you will find a man with a taste in food identical to your own will be when you have found a man who likes exactly the opposite type of girl from what you are. I've seen many aspiring witches fix a meal that is exactly to their guest's taste, using their own taste as a yardstick. These witches are terribly pleased with their gentleman friends, gobble up every crumb they ask when the next dinner will be. Mistakenly, the witch thinks she has found a man who really appreciates good food, in accordance with what she thinks good food should be. Little does she realize how well she has succeeded as a chef but failed as a witch, until she awakens to the brutal fact that he is around only for the food, not for her, and is not the least bit interested in anything but what she can supply him in the way of non-romantic indulgences. These chow hounds can't possibly get interested romantically, because so long as you've chosen the menu from your personal taste, and they like what you've selected, you have the wrong man. These are cases where the witch's ego can, ease, uh, can really get into the way, and the gals that do the most boasting about their special way of preparing a certain dish can often be spotted as the ones who fail witchery-wise. Until you are able to learn what he likes, don't goof up by throwing him what you like. I have devised a pleasant test by which one can tell whether a person is dominant or passive by nature. I call it the leve salad dressing test. No matter what kind of meal is served, the salad course can allow for personal choice of a basic type of salad is served and various kinds of dressings are offered. Or, if you're dining out, there are only a few fundamental dressings available in most restaurants and from these, French, Russian, Thousand Island, Roquefort, blue cheese, oil and vinegar, you may well discover more about a person's character than you would ever think possible. Men who are dominant in masculine archetypes prefer sweet dressings, such as French, Russian, Thousand Island, as do women who are dominant or latent or practicing lesbians. Women who are passive, submissive, and feminine archetypes prefer Roquefort, blue cheese, and oil and vinegar, as do males who are passive or latent or active homosexuals. Salads are seldom liked by small children unless a sweet dressing is applied. The taste of sweet dressing, with its minty tomato, spicy taste, plus the fact that it is most often used when seafood is incorporated in the salad, resembles the odor of a woman's sexual parts, and is therefore agreeable to the archetypical male. Conversely, the aroma and taste of the strong, cheesy roqueforts, blue cheese, oil and vinegar, etc., is similar to the male scrotal odor, and reminiscent of a locker full of well-worn jockstraps. This is naturally subliminally appealing to the predominantly heterosexual females, passive males and males with homophile tendencies. If a chef in a restaurant has a specialty dressing, it will not only tell much about his sexual predilections, but often serves to classify the management of the restaurant. Of course, there are many people who like all types of dressings, but there is usually a slight preference in one direction. Not a lot can be dis. A lot can be discerned from the kind of candy or cake a man likes. Dominant, self-indulgent, greedy types like candy, cake, and cookies with smooth texture. No nuts. They might love nuts, but by themselves, not blended with smooth, textured foods. These self-indulgent types don't want to have to work while they eat, and obstructions in their food distract them from their pleasure. They will gladly attack a steak with enthusiasm, but rebel when something like nuts, come along to break up the tranquility of an ice cream cone. These types have the least problems in life, as they will not readily allow them to develop. Submissive males, who are often used to sexual abstinence, like food with rough texture and prefer cookies, candy, and cake with nuts, healthy foods, food that is either very bland or extremely hot, strong or sour. In other words, these types must either get no definite pleasure and taste from food, abstinence or become submissive to its strength this is your cue that they want to be dominated by you a dominant male will order his steak rare one who is prepared to cater to your every need will order his medium or well done the truly dominant man will eat the frosting and throw away the cake even though it doesn't seem the he-man thing to do the man most likely to give you your own way will eat the cake after he has scraped off the frosting in the old days, witches used to place a great confidence in an edible effigy of the person they wished to charm. Even such festive confections as hot cross buns have a sexual meaning that isn't talked about at Sunday school. Hence was born the gingerbread man. Ginger has always been considered an important ingredient of love potions, and a love potion should rightfully be called a lust potion. Whether ginger works as an aphrodisiac or not, when a gingerbread man was baked, a great deal of ceremony went into the preparation of the truthsome morsel. First of all, it was assumed to be the proposed lover of the witch who prepared it or of the witch's client. Most of these cookie men were made of the use of lovelorn girls by an older, experienced witch who was wise in the ways of the world. The general procedure was to have the girl disrobe and lie on a wooden bench, as would likely be found in a kitchen. With her client flat on her back, the witch would procure a board about a foot square and place it over the girl's genitals. Then she placed a small iron stove, similar to a Japanese hibachi, on the board and stoked it up, forming the little figure from the dough and placing it over the glowing coals. She covered it and began to chant. As she talked, she spoke of the lusts that would fill the man who was represented, the things he would like to do, the exaggerated state of his member, and the consuming desire of the girl on the bench, telling the young woman that the heart from her loins and groin must merge with the glowing coals. She goaded the girl with erotic suggestion until a climax was obtained. Sometimes the organ... I'm getting (laughs) odd. Sometimes... The orgasm was assisted by the witch, who was often a lesbian who found that caressing her customer's breasts was nice work, or occasionally a demon assistant, would appear to help in the guise of a local dirty old man. Knowing the time needed to bake the cookie and gauging it accordingly, the witch removed the brazier and board from the now-spent woman and produced the finished product. Wrapping it carefully with a few more incantations, the witch got her customer dressed and sent her on her way. The young woman was to present the cake to her young man as soon as possible while it was still fresh then sit back and wait for the results it got so whenever a guy got a gingerbread man he knew what was up and more often than not took full advantage of the opportunity chances are good he believed in witchcraft in the first place and the knowledge that the spell had been wrought on him could not be glossed over combine this with the confidence of the witch when she proffered her spicy cookie and you can easily see why such enchantments seldom failed. The tradition of bride's biscuits is directly linked with the use of a cake for purposes of instilling sexual desire in a new husband, and any girl who bakes goodies for a man she likes is keeping an old witch custom alive. The term cookie lady is synonymous with witch, the association of Edibles with sexual desire will always make the ingestion of a certain food or drink the most desirable shortcut to romance in the popular mind. When the story got around about the Garden of Eden, it only helped propagate beliefs which had been around for thousands of years. Consequently, love potions are supposedly the stock and trade of the sorceress. As previously stated, the function of a so-called love potion is only that of an aphrodisiac. Each day I receive several letters from persons who think that a good love potion will solve all of their romantic problems. At best, all a love potion can accomplish is sexual stimulation. Any lasting love which develops will not be induced by the potion, but by the person. Many of the old recipes for drinks were nothing more than instructions in the preparation of liqueurs, similar to many that are now available on the open market. Commercially available love potions are... Advocat, an egg and brandy liqueur. Chartreuse, a French liqueur, supposedly containing 130 different herbs and spices in its secret formula. Creme de Noix, almond-tasting liqueur, made from crushed seeds of apricots, cherries, peaches, and plums, with an orange peel flavoring and a brandy base. Drambouille, a liquor with a Scotch malt whiskey base, flavored with spices and honey. Goldwasser, a spice liqueur, containing actual flex of gold leaf, long considered both uh, virility-producing and curative. Kumo, a German liqueur made from caraway and other seeds. May wine, sweet wine-flavored with woodruff. Medaxa, a dark, sweet, resinous Greek liqueur with a brandy base. Mezcal, a Mexican liquor, stronger than tequila, but also distilled from the fermented juice of the Magui cactus. The traditional variety made in Oaxaca. sorry if I butchered that, has an actual worm from the cactus floating in each bottle, attesting to its authenticity. Parfait Amour, a violet-flavored liqueur, often actually sold as a love potion. Slow Gin, a liquor made from the slow berry, blackthorn, an old ingredient commonly employed for love potions. Vermouth, a wine containing most of the herbs and barks of ancient love potions and well-known to all. The name originated originated from Wormwood, one of its original ingredients, called Vermut in German, means essence of man. If you want to save a lot of time, just go out and buy one of the aforementioned liquors. Each contains ingredients that have long been considered essential to love potions, and some are identical to preparations once dispensed as such. For those of you who want to make your own, Here are some well-tested recipes. Syrup of Priapus, one half ounce of flowers of stoichas, 25 myrtle berries, two thirds of an ounce anise, two thirds of an ounce of wild carrots, one half ounce of saffron flowers, 50 dried dates, four egg yolks, and one pint of pure spring water. Warm in an earthen vessel, well-sealed for 25 minutes. Take off the fire, filter through a napkin when tepid, and. Two ounces of pure honey. Let macerate 24 hours, shaking vessel three or four times. Pass through a sieve. Serve him one or two teaspoons in the evening. Pousse l'amour, liquor of love. Prepare in a wine glass. A quarter glass of maraschino and the yellow of an egg. A quarter glass of Madeira and of creme de cacao. a A quarter wine glass of brandy. Serve without mixing, taking care to leave the egg yolk whole. Gentian wine. Grade one ounce of gentian root and let macerate for 24 hours in three and one-half pints of brandy. Add a little red table wine, seal vessel, leave it in the sun for eight days, filter well. Wine de l'amour. Take a fifth of white table wine and incorporate the following substances. Two vanilla beans, one ounce cinnamon bark, one ounce ginseng, and one ounce rhubarb. Let macerate for two weeks, stirring daily, then filter and serve. Hippocras aphrodisiaca, one ounce crushed cinnamon bark, one ounce of ginger, one third ounce of clove, two and one quarter pounds granulated white sugar, and one and three quarter pints of red table wine. Let these ingredients macerate for five days, strain the whole through a cloth and pour wine through a funnel. To consume, Pour out one ounce of the mixture into the wine habitually drunk. To consume, pour one ounce of the mixture into the wine habitually drunk. Abyssinian Liquor of Love. Prepare in a glass, two lumps of sugar, four drops of curacao, one wine glass of red port wine. Fill the glass with water and let warm almost to a boil. Serve with a slice of lemon pierced with four cloves and a little grated nutmeg. Elisir Satanicu <laughs> Satanique. <Fuck. laughs> I'm gonna have to like edit this whole bit when I release these in the other channel. Elisir Satanique. Take one-fifth of vodka, pour into a jug, and incorporate the following. One two-ounce jar of instant coffee, prepared with one quart of water that has been brought to a boil, one vanilla bean, one-half ounce of mandrake root, one small tin of sesame seeds, and one pound of graduated sugar. Let these ingredients macerate for one month, stirring daily, but otherwise kept stoppering. Kept kept stoppered. Strain and serve. If you're having a party and want an easy-to-make punch that will be consumed copiously by those who don't even drink and has a decidedly sneaky effect, I've used this to great advantage for many years. Goblin juice. mix together one-fifth of rum, one-fifth of vodka, one large can of pineapple grapefruit drink, prepared under many brand names, one small can of concentrated frozen orange juice, diluted as per instructions on container, and four ounces of grenadine. You'll produce a drink every bit as potent as the most exotic Polynesian concoction, served with ice and lots of salted goodies. Whatever you do, don't make the mistake of thinking that a love potion will work when everything else has failed. If you expect to find a magical elixir that will enable you to have whomever you want without lifting your little finger to help, forget it. There are hormonal extracts that can work wonders, but they require considerably more knowledge for their use than meets the eye. When employing any type of aphrodisiac, many factors must be considered, chiefly side effects and personality variants. Knowing all about love potions but nothing about people can lead to a situation very similar to the classic anecdote about the man who was never successful with the ladies, who one day accidentally strolled down a narrow street in an old section of town, an area he had no knowledge even existed noticing a small shop its windows so dusty and dirty it was almost impossible to see beyond them he stopped to peer inside what he saw intrigued him all sorts of glass vials stoppered jars stuffed birds battered clocks etc trying the door he found it opened quite easily and upon entering was greeted by the stereotyped little old man with gray hair standing behind the counter almost as though he was expecting him getting down to business the wizard for that was his profession, told the man he had just the thing he needed, to which the man replied that what he needed was a good love potion, and he doubted that he would find it there or anywhere else. The wizard then informed the man that he did, indeed, have a love potion, and a good one. Asking the price of such a rare commodity, the man was informed that it was only a dollar and 49 cents, saying he would take one, he waited while the wizard went out back to get it. That following evening, the man had an opportunity to try his elixir, much to his surprise, it worked, and the girl he was, in, was with fairly raped him on the spot. Well, what do you think the man did? You're right. He went right down to the old wizard's the very next morning, and it was so early the store wasn't even open. A small penciled sign on the door informed him that if no one was at the store, to ring the upstairs bell, as that was where the proprietor lived. Doing so, he was admitted cordially by the old man, and then saw a sight that took his mind off his new-gotten fulfillment. The old man lived in splendor. Everywhere his gaze fell, the man saw incredible value and beautiful furnishing and objects d'art. And the decor of the place was in the most extravagant but elegant taste imaginable. Commenting on what a nice place he had, the man regained his composure and announced that he had stopped by to pick up a few more of those love potions. Agreeable to the sale, the two adjourned to the shop, where the wizard produced six more doses. A month passed, and the man again appeared at the wizard's shop. This time he was worn, haggard, sallow, and bent. His eyes were bloodshot and strained. The wizard had been expecting him. The man had become involved with many women, seven to be exact, all provided by the wizard's love potion. Now he could not get rid of them. They had complicated his life beyond belief. He had feared for his safety. The wizard knew what the man had in mind. He was very wise. He told the man he had a potion that would make all those girls forget he even existed. He assumed the man wished seven doses was correct. Wondering if he would have enough money to cover the purchase, the much-relieved man asked what the cost would amount to. The wizard mentally added the price up, as it required no great accounting. Seven doses at $5,000 per dose came to $35,000. Shaken, the man said he thought it was Awfully steep, and allowed as how he would have, uh, how he would have to sell his house to raise that kind of money. He then asked the wizard why his love potions were so cheap, but the antidote so expensive. To which the wizard only commented, "How do you think I get all that nice stuff upstairs?" It's great. I love it. It's so funny. All right. Love potions. Love potion number nine. What's your guys' favorite, uh, what's your favorite taste? Like, if you want to, if you want to make a de love, if you want to get in the mood, is it tea? Is it liquor? Is it wine? Is it beer? Is it water? Is it just the natural juices of the, uh, other person? What is it you're into? Is that a little too briny? (laughs) Your uh, walker blue bottle keeps getting lit lighter and you keep wondering why. Not the best bang for your buck, am I saying? <laughs> Uh Hi, Stormy. How's it going? Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm a wine guy. Like I, I love whiskeys. I love rye. Um, but my heart is always with wine. Which is weird because I used to make beer a lot. Uh, and uh, I grew my own harps. I still have hops plants out there. Um, and I do like pumpkin beer every year. Where I'd grow pumpkins. Little sugar pumpkins. That I would then make pies out of. And use uh, to steep in my um, uh, wort for the beer. And then I would make pumpkin ale. It was great. It, it was always great. But it got to a point where my taste just evolved in a different direction and it was all wine all the time like i just i can't i don't even drink beer anymore i can't it's like repulsive to me now but you give me some whiskey you give me some bourbon you give me some rye i'm good to go won't get a hangover give me a little wine i'll get down but i'll have a hangover the next day every single time that might be true dog (laughs) that might be true (laughs) Mead's nice. See, my, my wife loves mead. Uh, I'm not a big mead guy. Like if you're going to like a Renaissance Festival, and you know, they always have mead there for some reason. Alright, I'll have some then. But if I'm sitting at home, eh, a little too sweet. Usually, not always. I like me a, a nice, like, astringent wine. <laughs> Something that assaults your taste buds. That you can just let sit. That's great. Hi, Valeria. Thanks for joining us. All right, we are an hour and 17 minutes in. I think this is this upcoming section of Touch. I love it the most. It's the last section in this chapter, and yeah, it is. So, let me repair my throat here for a second. And we will get into it. I appreciate you guys joining me for this i mean i could just read it by myself without an audience to talk to but it is nice i like having a bit of the back and forth you know reading your guys' thoughts about the stuff too let's do it touch and her hands are bands for binding for when they place their hands on a creature to bewitch it then with the help of the devil they perform their design. Malleus Maleficarum. Soft skin, skin softness, like the proper perfume and perfunctory hygiene, is an almost exclusive feminine preoccupation. Men, the animals that they are, are seldom really concerned too much about whether a girl's skin is baby soft or not. Unless a man is fetishistically attracted to smooth skin. He will always give preference to a woman who represents his demonic element, even if her skin is less than perfect. Certainly, very few men like coarse, rough skin on a woman, but the average gal has much more to look after, as far as her witch power is concerned, than her skin. The obsession for soft skin is a throwback to the days when women who were respected were those who never used their hands, and soft skin was the mark of of gentility. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a decided advantage for a witch to have reasonably smooth skin. I simply find it magically unsound to pay homage to your femininity by way of your skin and completely forfeit it in other more important ways. A woman will use gallons of lotion each year to soften her hands, face, arms, and legs, while keeping her weight down to a skeletal figure that will practically leave punctures and bruises on a man making love to her. Regardless of what the ads tell you, Not all men like creamy skin on a gal. The men you'll find up around 12 o'clock on the synthesizer usually have a predilection for soft skin, soft flesh, and yes, even flabbiness. 6 o'clock men, however, like their women muscular, firm, and sometimes like shoe leather. Take a tip from these extreme types. If a man likes extra soft, translucent skin, chances are good he won't like you skinny. Whereas, if he goes for girls with a boyish figure, He'll not mind if your skin is a trifle weather-beaten. The consistency of your flesh is far more important than the delicacy of your skin, which makes the skin men love to touch is the flesh that lies beneath. There are four basic types of flesh, and each type corresponds to a position on the synthesizer clock. These basic types are 3 o'clock, sinewy, 6 o'clock, flabby, 9 o'clock, rubbery, and 12 o'clock, hard. The older a man gets, the more he likes extremes of his demonic type. He starts out as a boy, liking the kind of girls that are almost female duplicates of his apparent self. Then, suddenly, he will find himself falling for a girl that is exactly the opposite of everyone he has ever liked. It is at this time that he has, attract, uh, he has reached true sexual maturity. He's no longer attracted to girls who are sisters, but to those types he could never hope to find in his immediate family. The same selective sexual maturity can be seen in girls, when a succession of childhood sweetheart, uh, sweethearts of the type analogous to the girl is followed by one great love that will, represent, that will be represented by a totally different type, the demonic. We often see cases where a girl has married her high school sweetheart, and several years later, the marriage falls apart when the woman meets a man who is completely the opposite of her husband. The reason for this kind of occurrence, and also the common failure of childhood romances that later develop into bad marriages, should be obvious. In the instances such as these, a decided difference in the flesh tone will be noticed between the wife and the other woman. The first manifestations of an apparent demonic changeover are seen in the hair and complexion. The boy, who is always like girls who were fair and blonde, will settle down with one who is a brunette with olive skin. The girl who has only dated boys with dark hair and eyes will suddenly get serious about one with fair skin and sandy hair. Just as these flesh and complexion variants are observable in a white environment, so will they be readily discernible in an oriental culture or within the black community. All of the rules of personality analysis in this book apply to black people as well as white. The same subtle differences exist in all races. One only has to open his eyes to observe them. The old cliché that all blank, fill in the blank with whatever race or nationality will be appropriate to the conversation, look alike to me, can only be applied when one is prejudicial in the truest meaning of the word. Where one doesn't want to see the difference in types within a given ethnic group, the people comprising that group would indeed all look alike. An insect, asked by another insect to describe what it was that almost squashed them, might reply that it was a person. Asked to elaborate, he would probably drop the subject with, How should I know? All humans look alike to me. If a man likes a firm boyish figure when he is 25, by the time he is 40, he won't mind a few muscles and tendons that show. In fact, he'll secretly like them. If in his younger years of adulthood he goes for a baby doll type, by the time he is 20 years older, he will revel in your dimpled thighs and little rolls of fat. If he won't admit these things to you, it's only because he's afraid you'll think him odd. Nothing can unconsciously turn a man off more than a musculature and flesh tone that is antithetical to his demonic type. This is why clothing is such a blessing, as it allows you to camouflage a great deal of your actual appearance. How much or little of your flesh should be displayed and under what conditions will be explained later in the book. If a man likes his women tawny and firm, nothing will repel him more than a cute, chubby body with milky skin. He will think of it only as a sickly flabby... Only as sickenly flabby. Conversely, the man who prefers his his woman to be made of marshmallows and jelly will find little stimulation in a gal who feels like a guy. Of course, there are happy mediums, you are thinking... Yes, there are compromises between extremes, but don't try too hard to be perfect by spending all your time toning up your flesh and skin. The so-called perfect girls are the ones that scare men off because they are neither fish nor fowl. The old saying really applies that advises, if you try to please everybody, you often wind up pleasing nobody. The importance of tactile communication is more important to women than to men. A man's sexual and romantic interest is generated principally through the sense of sight, followed by smell and hearing, with touch and taste last. It is interesting to note that women place far less emphasis on male appearance, his odor, voice, and touch are sometimes even more important than how he appears. Witches should accordingly not make the mistake of thinking that massaging a man will turn him on, unless it is his actual manipulation of the sex organ. Most women respond strongly to a massage, so therefore think a man will. The men that respond sexually to a body massage are those whose core is that of a woman. Heterosexual men who like bodily massages invariably are stimulated by thoughts of lesbian activities between women and find lesbians very appealing. Homosexual men are almost all stimulated by body massage and are virtually all women. Rather than concentrate on actually caressing a man to charm him, allow him to think he is getting away with something. Arrange it so that your body will touch his in a manner that can appear as by accident, or if you feel bold, use the old trick of touching feet or legs under the table. This type of action, corny as it may seem, is infinitely more stimulating to a man than hand caressing. It is partially because of the intimacy of having contact between parts of the body that would normally only touch during sexual activity. Even while dancing, the legs and feet seldom touch. Social contact with the hands between persons of the same or opposite sexes occurs regularly in everyday life, so the hand loses a great deal of its potential as a magical weapon. To a woman, the emphasis is on the pleasure she receives through the tactile maneuvers of others. To a man, the erotic emphasis is on the stimulation gained from feeling. Women like to be felt. Men like to feel don't reverse the procedure unless you use your feet or legs for contact. There are always those masochists who love a gal who will take a firm hand with them. These are often the types I mentioned earlier that act the most sexually aggressive but are really pleading for a slap in the face or a bust in the mouth. Wrestling matches are their thing, and the witch must use plenty of physical contact with them and treat them like the combination of demanding mother and nurse they crave. Because these types. Uh, these type men are often the most stable in the world of business and finance, they are frequently good catches for the witch who is handy with her mitts and aggressive enough to use them. Lady judo and karate experts are always tremendously appealing to these men, and masseurs likewise find themselves catering to such types. Wherever you find classes in touching and feeling, which seem to be popular now under a variety of esoteric names, you will find them populated with people who are only one step removed from the topless bars and playboy clubs they deride as being look but don't touch. In the case of these feely academies, the standard of conduct is feel but don't do. Because intellectual or pseudo-intellectual males would be attractive to caressing and pinching on a scholarly basis, don't expect to see much other than two or five o'clock types, both male and female, attacking their inhibitions at your local centre for tactile enlightenment. The persons running the show, however, will often be a socially gregarious bisexual 8-10 to o'clock who likes to watch twos and ten feel each other up. Men in the 8-10 to o'clock bracket will respond to a clinical approach to sex as their demonic counterparts are on the intellectual side of the clock. The one final tactile trick of the witch, who is brazen, has always been to reach down and touch a man's penis even if he is clothed. Such a tactic requires a great deal of nerve, but is so blatantly outrageous that it will be guaranteed to get results. Don't grab or grasp, but subtly place your hand on it. If you are ladylike, yes, that's what makes the difference. He can't become offended, only flattered, spellbound or tremendously stimulated. Men are not subtle creatures, by any means as the most successful witches know. That's chapter three. We are now at chapter four. Looks mean everything. Oh, yeah. I got a little more in me. We can keep going for a little bit. All right. What what are you guys doing? What are you talking about? What's happening? You wish Levee had done a chapter on tattoos. That would be interesting. That would be interesting because, well, well, I think, I mean, primarily, probably the reason he didn't was because in his time, it was a very subculture thing to get tattoos. And so there wasn't the preponderance of, of of prevalence that there is nowadays where he could easily categorize people with them in the same way. Piercings, you know, I'd be interesting to, to learn what, you know, he would have said about people who have piercings or what types of piercings or where, um, but that would be interesting. Uh tattoos. Oh, the satanic warlock website does have videos about tattoos. Interesting. How's it going, CNDO? Um I don't know. Yona? I, I'm not sure uh I'm not sure Mega Skillmore would uh do something on body mods. I, I've never really even heard him talk about it, to be honest. So that would be interesting all right, well, let's do a little bit more. take a sip my tea. I'm doing my best not to drink during the week, but doing these ugh oh, I wish it'd help me take the edge off, you know <clears throat> oh, I lost my bookmark. 4. Looks mean everything. You don't have to be ugly. She goes forth from her hut, clad in a coarse garment, bare of foot, hair unbound and flowing onto her shoulders. Ovid. The quotation you have just read might be referred to as the Curse of Ovid. It is an affliction common to witches who feel they must adhere to the description of the Roman satirist, whose tongue-in-cheek description has been accepted as de rigueur. If you have good looks and you want to be a witch, then you must exploit your beauty at every opportunity. Very few women actually realize just how much emphasis a man places on appearance. You don't have to be flashy to get visual attention either. Despite the sound of your voice, your scent, or the texture of your skin, your appearance must command attention. If you are really ugly, you must capitalize on your grotesqueness. The truly ugly girl has others at a disadvantage, because rather than hurt her feelings, they will do things for her out of guilt. If you are homely and light-hearted and call others' attention to it, they will think you are a sweet sport. Talk about what a shame it is behind your back and try to avoid appearing patronizing in your presence by not doing anything special for you. If you are strange-looking and act like you don't really think so, Trying to look as much like others as possible, they will still talk behind your back, but a little more cruelly. When you are in their presence, their guilt at having done so, combined with the fear of wakening your apparent self-confidence, will cause them to be extremely patronizing. Neither of these patterns really gains your respect, but only sympathy. Respect based on accomplishment can only be given by those who are humble, wise, and themselves worthy of respect. From those who have achieved little or nothing at, and are ego-starved and insecure, respect can only be gained through fear. If you are generally, genuinely grotesque in appearance, the two ingredients you must possess in order to gain respect are accomplishment and awesomeness. Through accomplishment, you will gain respect from those who are just. With your awesomeness, you will regain respect from those who are small-minded." For centuries, deformed and homely people were considered spawn of the devil. I learned the present-day formula while working in carnivals, where I grew to know and love the people of the sideshow, the human oddities, or strange people, as they are called. The passing of the sideshow has left a void that psychologists could well study. It seems that public sentiment and guilt at exhibiting deformed people caused the demise of this institution. No one ever consulted the performers themselves, however, as to their feelings on the matter. They should not be exploited. It was cruel, it was said, in bad taste. Sadistic. So the sideshows folded and the freaks became unfortunate people who had a right to live just like anybody else. So instead of getting paid while people stared, they just got to go into supermarkets with their normal niece, just like anybody else, and people nudged each other and did double takes and ran down the aisle to get their friend and did exactly the same thing that 20 years earlier they would have been paid to do and done openly, not surreptitiously. I say that if you are in any way beyond the help of glamorizing techniques, take the devil's name and play the devil's game and let people know it, for you are the witch that Ovid casts for the world to see. Learn a skill. Paint. Play. Sculpt, write, draw, read, so that those who matter will respect you because you are strange, wise, and capable. Let your status as a witch be known, not sanctimoniously as a good witch or a white witch, but as a stereotyped witch who has taken her lessons straight from the devil himself. Wear the colors that would be consistent with your type on the synthesizer. Do everything else in accord with your type. You will then be perfect, but strange-looking, and that will confound others. You will be outrageous, because everything about you will fit, despite your homeliness. And with your hint of secret powers, the small-minded will fear you. And well, they should, for should you follow this advice, you will have those powers. If you are pretty enough to attract men at all, you will be able to take advantage of the formulas contained in these chapters on glamour. One of the most commonly asked questions by students of witchery, upon learning some of the tricks which follow, is Why do I have to do that? I get enough attention as it is. My answer to that is, A witch can never get too much attention, and if you have a surplus, you not only have more victims for which to choose, but an abundance of potent lust powers being poured into you. I'll discuss the meaning of lust power later on. Another frequently asked question is, If I do all these outrageous things you say, what kind of men am I going to attract? The answer to this is all kinds. If your objections to utilizing some of the methods I tell you are founded in your fear that only kind of men who will respond to you are the worst kind, get that thought out of your head. A pretty girl will be propositioned wherever she goes and the best or worst in men depending on your definition will be influenced by the environment in which you operate if you are a sexy witch employing all your accoutrements of outrageousness and you go into a bar in the worst part of town all of the drifters hustlers and winos will be goggle eyed over you and you will think that Anton LaVey is nuts look at the kind of characters I attract when I come on like this Just try going to a fashionable cocktail party the same way, though, and you'll have all the women glaring at you and all the men swarming around you. Attend a business convention and have businessmen clustering about and present yourself at the 4th of July planning committee dinner and find yourself the darling of every elk, moose, odd fellow, legionnaire, and veteran of foreign wars. What I'm trying to say is that you will steal the show and the kind of men you attract will depend on the type of theater you're working. Don't forget that sex appeal is a universal appeal and not limited to certain economic or cultural levels. If movie goddesses worried about only appealing to finer and more exclusive males, they would never get any place. This doesn't mean that they have to go to bed with every guy that oogles them on the screen, much less even ever speak to them. It just means that If you utilize certain tricks that will create compulsion in enough people, you'll soon be able to see the right face in the crowd, and the old adage, them that has, gets, will take on a new meaning. A most devastating stigma that can confront any witch is the fear of being phony. If you're afraid of being considered phony, you will surely fail, no matter what you do to appear otherwise, if you succeed in anything, there will always be the charge of phoniness leveled against you by those who either can't stand your success, don't have the guts to do what you're doing, or wish they'd thought of it first. If you remain within the bounds of public propriety, and most outrageous tactics are, perform your tasks or responsibilities in an efficient manner, and are civil and courteous, you'd be surprised at the things you can get away with in your appearance. The witch has always been a rebel, but not in a way that she can be stereotyped. Her actions and appearance are far more nonconforming than the wildest hair, grimiest clothes, mismatching attire, and body art of the most far-out stereotyped hippie. Yet with her subtle violations of taboos, the witch, in all her nonconformity, cannot be labeled a nonconformist. This very paradox is one of the reasons for her power. She is. But she isn't! She is a complete woman, a perfect capsulization of her synthesizer type, yet she defies sacred cows the other women kneel before. Let's see how she does it. The next section is on makeup. Ooh, I love that. I mean, this is just instilling confidence in who you are. I, and, I mean, ultimately, you can, you can boil down a lot of Satanism to that idea alone. But I think this section alone is just, it's just fantastic. I would absolutely love it. And this entire, and we're halfway through it at this point, um, this entire book is just nothing but how to be best in your own skin. <laughs> and fuck everyone else. Literally and figuratively. It's, it's fucking amazing, right? It's fucking great. It's great. All right. Thank you, Complicius. Why would you choose a name like that when I'm reading and already tongue-tied? Just to fuck with me, I think. Uh, how's it going, Basilis Ravencroft? I'm assuming those are pseudonyms, not actual names. If your parents named you Complicicus. Complicius, Complicius, <laughs> I don't think they wanted kids. <laughs> Oh man. All right. Well, I got 20 minutes left. Let's let's see if we can get through this next one. Let me see how long it is. Yeah, we can do this. I'm not trying to make fun of anyone. I'm just saying. <laughs> makeup. Projective coloration. How often we encounter the man who has a fit when his wife uses glamorous makeup or revealing clothing, yet we all get excited when he sees another woman doing the same thing. This is not an isolated phenomenon and is especially prevalent in men who have been raised in an ethnic group that still places great value on a wife as a mother, cook, housekeeper, nurse, and piece of property, but not as a woman. All you gals who advocate a natural look and disavow makeup are playing right into the hands of these fellows, and if you're lucky, might wind up with one and also wind up with a personalityless drudge. You may be sure of appearing as good, safe, stay-at-home wife material, and he will have the utmost respect for you, as he would for a faithful cook, but he'll not respect you for the one most power- important asset every woman who has the wherewithal to employ it—your looks. Vanity not only keeps a woman young, but also gives her something to live for, And if you get saddled to a man who stifles this basic female urge, yet oogles its effects on other women, he could well be knocking years off your life. This doesn't mean you should keep up with every new style in an attempt to keep your youthful appearance, it simply means you should appear in a manner that you can identify with sexiness at some time in your life, for that is what really counts. The woman in her 60s, with her funny hat with the cherries on it, her rouged cheeks, Battleship corset and whitely powdered nose is to be admired, for she is sustaining herself by way of what she considers to be an expression of glamour, analogous to the most sensually appealing period in her life. Her vitality is continuing because of what let's call erotic crystallization inertia, or ECI. Just about everyone displays some form of ECI in their appearance, except for those who seek to escape it through their adoption of every new style in clothing, makeup, and hair that comes along, and I have found these to be the most insecure and truly unhappy of all people. Women who affect total appearance changes on a frequent basis are looked upon by others as being vital, but alas, their vitality stops at their appearance, actions, and speech. Underneath their stylish façade, they are groping, grasping, searching, yearning, tragically unhappy creatures. The first place to start, and least expensive, is with your makeup, insofar as bringing out the witch in you. If you want to look like you've just died, go easy on the makeup, because vitality is associated with color. That's why they overdo the makeup so often in preparing the body for a funeral, to make it look alive. Of course. The body looks like it's just sleeping rather than dead. It undoubtedly has more color in the face than it did when alive. The resulting life in the skin color often imparts an appearance of actual breathing. If you are a vampire type, you should learn a few things about vampires. The vampire is pale and wraith-like, with sunken dark eyes while it is unable to get some nice juicy person to suck on. A successful vampire, and that is the kind you want to be, always has a feast waiting. Remember, in all types of witchery, them that has gets. This even applies to vampires. So don't look like an unsuccessful vampire and you won't be one. This means you've got to accentuate your mouth and that is the only orifice of your body into which large things, food, can be inserted that is visible in polite society. Call attention to your mouth But not through the overuse of your vocal cords, because then everything is going out and nothing is hinted at entering. Wear red lipstick, not pale red, but bright enough and dark enough to be of decided contrast to your skin. Even if you're not a vampire type, remember that witches and vampires have long been identified as one and the same, and many languages have only one word for the two terms. Your mouth is one of the most erotically stimulating parts of your body, so don't neglect it by making it look like something that's just there because you can't help it. Wear the brightest, reddest lipstick you can find. The protests to what I'm saying will be at least one of these A. It looks cheap. B. It doesn't look natural. C. It detracts from the eyes. D. It makes you look older. E. It's out of style. My answer to A is, cheap is just a synonym for available, and every witch who is good-looking should look available. That doesn't mean you have to be available. Anything that will make you look available, without your actually coming out and stating you are, is fine. You must make every man that sees you think he would like to go to bed with you, and the only way you can do that is to give him sneaky cues that will lead him to think he can. My answer to B is that a man doesn't care one hoot if you look natural, so long as you look sexy. I have proven many times over that the painted hussy will steal the show from the more tasteful girls. Many years ago, I had my witches wearing false eyelashes with heavy eye makeup, and though they were always criticized by other women as looking artificial, they got all the attention from the men. When a man sees a makeup job that is blatantly and obviously makeup, he's automatically flattered because he knows the woman is trying to look sexy. Men like to see a sexy-looking woman, and it pleases a man to think that a woman is knocking herself out trying to please him. If you're attempting to enchant purely for your own physical and romantic self-indulgence, don't turn the guy off by being fearful that your makeup will get smudged during the course of your love lovemaking. First impressions are lasting, so once the emotional crystallization has taken place, Be glad that all your projection coloration has done the trick. Contrary to what you might think, a man won't be disillusioned by seeing you without your makeup. Red lipstick signals the fact that you're trying to please. Whatever turns a person on is natural, and we had better get rid of that hackneyed term. You should only consider what is socially acceptable and what is not socially acceptable. Then, from the socially unacceptable things, decide which is harmful and which is harmless. To most people, the term natural means naked, so if you really want to be natural, walk around with all your clothes off, but be sure if you're wearing makeup, it looks natural. If you think dark red lipstick will detract from your eyes, see, you're crazy. What's wrong with displaying one of the most erogenous spots on your body if you can get away with it? For that is what your mouth represents. You surely don't worry about your mini skirt detracting from your eyes, nor your 42-inch bust, do you? Those things are a hell of a lot bigger distractions than a crimson mouth. If you wear enough eye makeup, you'll have a double threat going for you, as the gazer will be tempted to both your eyes and your mouth. An expressive pair of lips with an occasionally provocative exposure of the tongue can drive a man wild, and between such an eye-mouth barrage, he can be reduced to putty. The mouth can often be a worthwhile distraction from the nose. If you have a nose that you consider imperfect, the best thing you can do is hide it in between a tempting scarlet mouth and a pair of inviting eyes.